We all want to feel like we belong, but sometimes it's challenging to find connection in our living spaces, neighborhoods, communities, and relationships. On Home Where You Belong, we're here to change that. Hear stories of people from different backgrounds and from different places and how they've been able to feel more at home to help give you a renewed sense of connection, belonging, and optimism. Welcome to Home Where You Belong with your host, Chip Alford. I grappled onto how parents and home are the first teachers. Things that happen at home are those experiences children bring with them everywhere they go. And I know that firsthand. Parents have a tremendous opportunity to shape their children's education by creating a home environment that supports learning. But where do they start? And how do they overcome common challenges that arise along the way? Today, we're going to get some answers to those questions from two experts in the fields of education and training. A. Keith Young is an education coach, trainer, and writer with experience as a teacher and administrator in several states and countries. He is known for his progressive teaching philosophy and direct coaching style. Tamara Osborne is a project manager, trainer, and coach with West Ed, a national nonprofit located in San Francisco, California. An effervescent trainer and technical coach, Tamara is known for seeing the heart of a problem and providing sensible, warm-hearted solutions. Together, along with publisher and consultant Angela Bell Julian, they authored The Instructional Coaching Handbook, 200 Plus Strategies for Success. Keith and Tamara, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm thrilled to have you on Home Where You Belong. Thank you, Chip. We're glad to be here. I'm excited, too. Hi, Chip. What a great um, introduction. So glad to be here with you. Thanks so much. Let's just start things off by talking about what got you interested in early childhood education and and coaching teachers and and parents. Tamara, why don't you why don't you start us off? Absolutely. Glad to go first. So I started at 16, one of those weird kids who knew what they wanted to do right away. And I wow. started playing with kids, running kid groups, running summer groups. And then I quickly moved into teaching kindergarten. And I was on the fence about if that's where my heart was, but I found my heart in preschool and lived there for almost 15 years. And now I'm coaching and training teachers who work with um, children. So I'm I'm really in my happy space. That's awesome. What about you, Keith? What What got you in this area, into this area? I grew up in uh, Northeast Alabama in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains, uh, the oldest of four and a first generation college student. I wanted to go to college to be an English teacher because I thought I wanted to be a, a missionary on the foreign mission field, the Southern Baptist foreign mission field. But I went a different direction, I ended up teaching uh, middle school and high school, English and math. And my actually my first year in the classroom I started training parents in the writing process, the head of the English department and I did. And so I progressed from there into school, public school administration. I worked overseas for the Department of Defense for a number of years where I was a teacher. I was a school administrator. And then uh, I went to work for West Ed. And that's where I met Tamara. You know, I, I was coaching school administrators. I had been a school turnaround principal. And so with West Ed, I started coaching principals and uh, school teachers, still training parents uh, throughout all that time. And then I met uh, Tamara and 
we started working together. How long ago was it tomorrow? Uh, about 10 years now, about 10 oh, years. Okay. Yeah, you got a, right. you got a decade of uh -huh. experience together. Thanks for sharing that background. That, that helps kind of set the scene a little bit. Tomorrow, how, how do you think your background growing up and, and then the experience you've had, how did that in, influence your approach to teaching and coaching? Oh, that's a great question. So I was um, born and raised in Oakland, California. I um, grew up in the middle of um, some hard times that were happening in Oakland around the 80s and 90s. Mm. And um, seeing things in my neighborhood, even things within my family, I wanted to go to college and graduate. So I'm a first generation college graduate within my family. Congratulations. That's great. You and my family is huge. My dad has eleven brothers and sisters. Wow! wow. So being raised in this big family, <laughs> you you had a busy home, I bet. All the time, all <laughs> the time. But being raised in that, you you learn a lot. You learn how to honor the differences of different people. You learn how to be accepting of how people show up and how they express themselves, and you learn not to be quiet because. Closed mouths don't get fed. So. <laughs> You'll be ignored, right? If you're too quiet. Absolutely. Yeah. You'll be hungry. For You'll sure. be hungry. That's even worse. <laughs> and and I knew, right? So after college and all of these things, um, you really, gra I grappled onto how parents and home are the first teachers. Things that happen at home are those experiences children bring with them everywhere they go. And I know that firsthand. Okay, well, we're going to get into that a little more. So thanks for bringing that up. Hey, let's just tell our listeners, Keith and I are, are old friends, are young men who were friends a long time ago. I should say it that way, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I was actually born in California, so I have that in common with you tomorrow. I was actually born in Santa Rosa, which isn't too far from, from my born, right? I was just out there recently visiting relatives. But most of my growing up years were spent in the same area that, that Keith is familiar with, um, uh, Northeast Alabama. I grew up on a farm kind of out in the middle of nowhere in a, in a community called Ball Play. Keith and I knew each other in, in I guess, high school. Keith, was that when we first yep. started connecting? And then tell us how your background growing up there in Northeast Alabama kind of influenced your um, approach to teaching and coaching. I think, uh, like you said, we went to a very small high school. We were in a very small community. Uh, we went to the same church. My teachers had a huge influence on me. There was no one from my family that you know went to college or I could talk to about going to college. So it was my teachers who kind of knew us maybe too well in that small high school who really <laughs> pushed me and nudged me you know, to, you know, to try something different. And that's, uh, that's always made a major impact on me. So I've always had a passion for education. I've had a passion, you know, for kids who are underrepresented because I'm a gay man. And so growing up in rural Alabama, it was not, I didn't know anybody else at that time who was gay. So I've always had a, you know, a piece of my heart, you know, for underserved, um, overlooked uh, kids. And so that has, you know, I have a social justice stance, you know, sort of mm. in my bones because of that upbringing. So I would say that's how that influences me to this very day in terms of how I approach uh, talking to parents, talking to educators, how I approach education in general. 
Absolutely. I, I want to talk a little bit more about diversity and inclusion um, in a moment, um, because I think it definitely relates to home and belonging. Keith, you did know somebody who was gay. You just didn't know because we we were both uh, closeted yeah. kids back then. Um, that was that was a long time ago in, in small town Alabama. So um, it was a totally different world. I'm glad things have changed. There's still challenges out there, obviously, but um, but improvements have been made. So that's good. Yeah. yeah. I think Tamara, you talked about this uh, a little bit already as, as home is the first learning environment. Why is it important, do you think, that we recognize that, that we recognize that parents are really the children's first teacher? And why is that so critical? So I don't know that everyone realizes that everything that happens to us is a teachable moment. Mm. everything is a teachable moment even if it's that I failed at something you just learned how not to do it (laughs) or you learned that you now have right you have stamina to go and try something new that you're not comfortable with and so much learning happens intentionally or not before a child goes to school so much learning happens they learn about their identity they learn about how they're going to be accepted the dimensions of a family how do we celebrate how do we communicate learning is integrated into everything we do simple things can be teaching tools from children doing the laundry to them setting the table to how they set up a calendar and a schedule and going to their own appointments that's all learning all the time and it starts it starts right away in, in in the home setting, right? Keith, what's your thought on that? What why is it so critical that we keep this home as the first teaching environment in mind? I agree with Tamara. I think sometimes some parents don't realize that they're the first teacher and those little bitty things that they're doing, like showing care, talking, cuddling with the child is actually teaching the child. I have many parents that hear from me for the first time that they should be reading to their their child who is not even a toddler yet. They're like, wait a minute, that makes a difference. And there's actually <laughs> research out there to show that when parents do that, when they are, you know, when they are talking to or reading or verbally interacting with a child who is not even verbal yet, that child learns to talk faster because the parent is the model. The parent is the teacher. The, the child is realizing not consciously, but they're realizing that, hey, this I'm making noises and they're responding to that. And that actually accelerates the language development. Yeah, one of my earliest memories is is of my mother reading to me as a small child, you know, on our couch. I can still still see the material of that couch. And then when we when I would go to bed, she would she would read me stories, children's stories, but sometimes just other books. I don't remember specific ones, but I remember that, you know, she'd read a little bit each night. And um I think one of the reasons I became a reader earlier than most kids is is because of that. And it it definitely helped with that. And and it was a, a bonding moment too for mother and child as well. There's a lot of research out there about serve and return, right? It's a serve and return. You want to see children, even if they're nonverbal, just the act of I give, you give, I give, you give. That's why babbling is so important. That's why <laughs> mother ease is so important. <laughs> Absolutely. What happened to me and my siblings was similar to what happened to you, Chip. My family was not big into advanced education, but my mother did go to the Gaston Public Library and we all had cards and she was checking out books and reading, you know, her 
uh, Reader's Digest condensed novels. And we were all reading Dr. Seuss and other books. And so I know that had a huge impact on, on me, you know, liking to read and being interested in reading and even, you know, eventually becoming an English teacher. I love that we all have this connection about libraries and books. My mom would take me to the library all the time, all the time. One of the little fun facts about me I tell people is when I was in high school, I used to cut school to go to the bookstore. <laughs> I guess that isn't the nerdiest thing in the world. I don't think I've ever heard that before. That's an interesting reason to cut school. A good, a good one, maybe. But um, yeah, if you're going to cut school, go to the library or the bookstore. Yeah. <laughs> You guys have given some examples already, but but how can parents create a home environment that that fosters learning? Reading to their kids is is one way. Are, are there any other practical tips you can share? Tamara, do you want to start us Absolutely. off there? So um, I'm here in California, like I mentioned, and there's First Five California. First Five California has these wonderful commercials. And the first time I saw them a few years back, I was dancing. And it's <laughs> like the best thing you can do for your kid is talk, read, sing. Talk, read, and sing. And then I think about just some other little practical tips that you can do if you have infants or toddlers, just creating a protected floor space for those babies where they can go and practice their own body control, right? Mm. Sometimes families don't understand the importance of children building trunk, trunk, um, Strength, support, yeah. right? Being able to lift their heads, being able to roll their bodies over, and then seeing their face of shock, like, "Oh my God, I just did <laughs> I can do that." I, hey, I'm 60 and I'm still trying to improve my core support. I, that never ends. You might as well start early, right? <laughs> Anything else come to mind tomorrow? Yeah. So small little things like putting a stuffed animal just outside of their reach for them to stretch or for them to grow, grow um, crawl to or move towards and involving older children in just common household tasks, putting away the dishes, organizing the spices, Children with those types of expectations and knowing that they belong to and participate in the family, that is all learning. Did you call your grandma today just to check in on her? It's your turn to set the table, right? All of us are imitators. We're going to do what it is we see. So if you if they see you doing those things, like you said, Chip, you saw your mom reading, like Keith said, I saw her reading. That made me want to do it too. Absolutely. And my sisters read to me as well and, and danced with me. Um, yeah, I remember I remember them putting on records. It's like when the Beatles, I'm you know, I'm dating myself, but we would dance to to old records. So I I have a vivid memory of that as well. Keith, any other thoughts or ideas or tips you could share on on how parents can create an environment at home that fosters learning? Well, there's lots of things that there's just tons of things that parents can do. I two examples jump off from just the past couple of weeks. My sister was working with her 15-year-old. He was sitting in the computer and she was talking to him from the kitchen. And she was coaching him on how to write an email to his Boy Scout leader because he needed to earn his eagle or whatever he was doing. And she and he was reading the email to his mother and she was saying, Well, you need to say this. He doesn't know what you're saying there. And so I thought about how many high school teachers and university professors I've heard complain because students don't even know how to write an email. Well, there's some things you can do as child as children progress in order to help them. Something as simple as how do you write an email to someone in authority? How do you communicate clearly? And then 
um, you just have to adjust as they go through their different stages. You know, Tamar gave some examples from preschool, but that's one from high school. I was working with my um, my sister-in-law's son and and we're trying to help him with his reading because he's uh, learning English as a second language. And one of the things we found out was that, you know, try to get him hooked on a chapter book. And so we're interested. We're he's only nine, but we're, you know, having him cruise through a couple of different series to see which one, you know, hooks him. That might be the very thing that, you know, gets him to actually like reading. For me, it was Hardy Boys. And I clearly remember that. I had no idea that was a good strategy for kids, but they actually have some research to show that if you can at that around that age, if you can kind of get them hooked into a series, they'll be uh, reading will be much more appealing to them. And they'll be much more interested and more likely to enjoy it. There are also some free resources out there. The National Association for the Education of Young Children, NAEYC. That's what all the education nerds like tomorrow and I use <laughs> resource for, you know, birth through age eight. And they have a lot of resources for parents that are free. Uh, I've had several relatives just uh, pick up their primary resource, which is developmentally appropriate practice. Uh, it's kind of a a thick read, but you know they read it in a weekend or two, and they just picked up a ton of knowledge about you know the basic development of children and how it you know progresses and how children go through different stages, whether it's walking or recognizing you know numbers and letters in their own name, um, all the way from you know. The time they come out of the womb, you know, through around age eight. It's very practical information that people can find some information on. And it's also free. Awesome. We'll definitely include a link to that in the in the show notes. Thanks for sharing that. Well, you mentioned great resources. Um, I think one of those would be your the book that you two collaborated on with another, another consultant called The Instructional Coaching Handbook. 200 plus strategies for success, which is, you know, all about learning and, and creating a good learning environment at, at home and school. Um, you work a lot with teachers, but are there any other strategies you would recommend that that might impact a child's learning in the home? Tamara, anything else that, that you haven't already mentioned you might add to that? I think um, maybe I, I just to put it out there explicitly, um, routines are key. Right. Routines are how children learn and how they also learn to feel safe. They know what to expect and they know what to do and they want to show you. They want to show you that I know where this goes. I can do this, um, which kind of goes back to something Keith was saying before about the high school kid who was writing or the middle school kid writing an email and mom was coaching him. So part of the learning opportunity is not doing it for them, okay. but coaching them through whatever that difficulty is, right? So as a preschooler, don't tie their shoes for them, coach them through it. As a middle schooler, don't write their paper for them or go talk to their teachers for them. Teach them how to have those conversations. That's how we put right um, children and people out into the world who know how to how to be social in a society. And who can who can address and work on problems themselves rather than expecting everybody else to to solve them for them, right? That's right, absolutely. So routines is at the top, and then relationships, relationships, relationships. So no, so helping children know how to build relationships with other adults too, with other friends, and trusting themselves, trusting their gut and what they feel about it. Okay. It's about 
I go back to this saying, and maybe all I think the two of you might have heard it too, but my mom would always say, don't talk to strangers, don't talk to strangers. <laughs> and here we are in 2023. And not only are you encouraging your children to talk to strangers online and right, get into a stranger's car and Uber and all of those things. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a shift of that language. It's not don't talk to strangers. It's um, teaching children to have an eye out for strange behavior. Like okay. that's a little weird. I don't know if that's what I want to do. But children right. don't know how to do that if we don't show them, if we don't right, put it out there and say, if you if something in you doesn't feel right about it, you you can say something and you should. Keith, anything else you'd you'd add to that regarding strategies for for the home environment? I would say that coaching is is huge. And that is why we wrote the book. We wrote the book uh, primarily focused on coaching teachers, but it's also for coaching parents. There's a whole chapter on efficacy. A lot of the parents that I know that I work with, they're very anxious. They're under a lot of pressure. Uh, they want to get it right. You know, so that chapter is all about, you know, relax, know that you have some, efficacy is all about self-power. You have some power. You, you know, you don't have to overthink it you know you want to think about it but you don't want to overthink it you don't want to be anxious about every decision that you make and sometimes taking a step back and getting to that coaching position as a parent is very valuable there was a dad I was uh, we had like three kids that were between two and five the other day and they were all playing ball and the and none of them some of them didn't have a language and the others didn't know how to share and so I just grabbed him by the by the by the shirt as we were walking toward the kids said, they don't know how to share you got to show them you grab the father yeah yeah and he immediately switched what he was doing i mean he knew exactly what i was saying he spread everybody out he says okay you got to hold the ball until this one goes <laughs> now that one goes he was just sort of he wasn't making them he wasn't picking the ball up for them and give it to them he was telling them he was showing them how to take turns and okay. they did it beautifully and these were kids that had been arguing earlier <laughs> but he just <laughs> You know, he just took that role of, okay, wait. So he was teaching them how to share the ball. Other people were yelling at them all day long, share the ball, share the ball. And he actually showed them how to share the ball. Much more visual made, probably made a, what well, you said, it made a bigger impact right away, right? Yeah. And it was a coaching position. Instead of just telling them, he was actually showing them how to share the ball. Right. That's across the gamut when teachers are telling um, teachers, coaches, any adult are telling mm -hmm. them, yes. be a friend, be right. But they don't know what that looks like. So okay. that's why the modeling is really important. Okay. Even sharing, I hear this a lot from preschool parents, you know, share the toys, share the toys. They don't know what that means in the beginning. Right. The words for that, they don't understand. They're like, this is mine. Why would I give it to him? Why would you I know? share that? Like, yeah. How I do don't I know do what share that? means? Yeah. What word, what words do I use? And so you have to like show them. Here's yeah. some words you could try. Well, you know? when you see them being a friend, being nice or being empathetic to a friend, patting someone on the back because they're crying, that's really friendly what you just did. But when they Safety. ask someone, okay. are you okay? That's friendly. You are being a friend right now. You reinforce the good behaviors that you see, right? And they start to understand those more clearly. They're understanding abstract concepts is what they're yeah. doing and learn to label their emotions and their feelings. Let's talk for a minute about diversity and inclusion, something that I think is important to all three of us. 
is it important that parents start early with with talking to their kids about diversity and inclusion at home? And if so, how, how do they do that? Tamara, maybe can you start us off there? What, what's your thoughts on that? I remember just for me, right, my own self growing up um, in the in the 80s and the 90s and looking for myself, mm. looking for me to be represented in this world. And it was no to almost non-existent. Like the first time I saw a little black girl on TV, I was like, oh my God, I love her. I want to be her. <laughs> and it was Tootie from Facts of Life. Oh yeah. I Janet Jackson, right. <laughs> or Janet Jackson on Good Times, right? Oh my God, that's me. That looks like me. Um, and so I think about diversity now and how the world has opened up to more acceptance. We're not where we should be or could be, but we've definitely opened up. I have a goddaughter who's about to be too high, Zoe. And <laughs> I think about how much more opportunity and access she has. She watches shows like Alma, where there's a little girl her size walking around speaking Spanish. Or she watches a show like Twist, where there's a little black girl who's a scientist. Or there's a little girl who's a veterinarian. Those those things help her to know she belongs in this world and that she's seen, right? Because there's been such a this history of the single story about a group of people, the okay. single story that's either being pushed in the narrative from media, from TV, from newspapers. And if I live in a place that is not diverse and all I have is the single story, I am not showing up as my best self or being accepted to others. I think about the single story, because uh, I am a Black woman, the single story about Black women being angry or being, right, the angry Black woman, the angry, loud Black woman. And if you don't know any, or if you haven't seen them in another light, that's the only story you have. That's not what, that's not what we're trying to raise or have in a society, right? Absolutely. You know, Tamar, you you mentioned how important representation is, and and the town that um, you know Keith and I grew up in. There there were a lot of great things about it, and um, but it was it was very wide. I don't I don't know of any. Do you remember any black people living in our in our immediate town? Um, no, no, not when not when you and I were. Uh, yeah. In no, absolutely. So like, you know, from the time I was, you know, when I was in California, I started, uh, I went to kindergarten and part of first grade in California. And there was a couple of African-American uh, students in my class, a couple of Asian-American and maybe one or two Native American people. And then I moved to Alabama and it was there, from the time I was in first grade until I went to college, it was all white and, you know, mostly Protestant there wasn't a lot of diversity that was, you know, easily viewable or seen. So I, I'm wondering, Keith, you know, what effect do you think that had on us? Because I didn't see, you know, I didn't really start to interact with people that were much different, at least from a race um, standpoint until I went, until I went to college. Well, I would say even college for me was limiting because I was heavily involved in the church and Southern Baptist church and it was all white. Hmm. You know, all the way through college, you know, all the way through, I went to a couple of years of seminary after college. So even the church was very segregated. So it was limited in terms of 
people of uh, different sexual orientations. It was limited in terms of race. And I think it had a huge impact for the very reasons that, you know, Tamara said, you know, not seeing anyone limits your perspective. I worked on a doctorate on LGBTQIA superintendents of color. And the whole background research for that whole dissertation showed basically that the more you and I know a sexual minority or someone who is uh, of a different race, the less racist and sexist we are. I mean, it just sounds so common sense, but it's well, true. I think about that from the LGBTQ perspective. That's why, you know, we encourage people to come out because there's research and studies that was kind of what you were saying. If you know someone, it can make a real difference because, you know, it's it's it becomes more familiar and you see it. And I think that's one reason, you know, it was a different time, but why, you know, there were several gay people in our class, but we didn't know that because we were not open and and visible about that so we we didn't see that i remember when i was at all i went to auburn to to college in alabama and i remember seeing an advertisement in the student newspaper for auburn gay awareness which was probably some student group and and i was just shocked i was like oh you mean there's gay people you know here <laughs> like it was this college of twenty thousand people you know yeah there's probably some gay people there you know but yeah if you don't see or interact with people who are different from you, it's it's easy to kind of live your life in a box, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And to make all kind of assumptions. That's where stereotypes, I think, mainly come from. You just start making assumptions. Oh, yeah. I had this one encounter with this one Black person, and it was not positive. They're all like this. Because yeah. you don't know that you can say that only because you don't know others. Absolutely. So that's, the, that's why, you know, your original question to us, was why is it important to talk about, you know, in inclusion and diversity with young children? That's the very reason they get it when they're exposed to it. They understand I, differences. You know, yeah. they, get, you know, they're very curious about themselves and about the world and they understand that. And the more exposure that you give them to that, then the less racist and sexist and homophobic, homophobic, <laughs> you know, child that you'll be raising. Yeah, absolutely. And it starts in the home. I do equity courses and, you know, people ask me, well, how do I teach my child, you know, not to be racist? I say, well, who are your friends? Yeah. Mm. Do That's you have diverse friends? Do you live in a diverse neighborhood? Okay. If not, what can you change? Look at your Facebook group. Who are you friends with on Facebook? You know, who are you, you know, who are you talking to? Who are you interacting with? What kind of church do you go to? Basic, you know, places where you, you know, you should be looking at diversity in it. If you want to really raise a child who, you know, knows the world and, and respects the world. And I think about being raised um, where my parents, right, they bring their experience with them. But I was raised in a time where children were not seen or heard. You only spoke when someone spoke to you mm -hmm. and your feelings. Nobody asked you about how you felt or any of that. It was do what I say because I said so. And I'm the mother of two amazing young black men who are empathetic and kind. And it was me making sure that not only that they got the things I didn't get, but they also got the things that I did get. I didn't want to, right? 
because I got a lot of wonderful things growing up and I wanted to give them that, but also the things I didn't get, I didn't get to ask questions. Okay. And I think having a home where it's welcome that we ask questions, that we have these conversations at the table, we have these conversations in the car, right? Don't allow your kid to zone out on you when you're in the car. That is prime opportunity to bring up these types of topics, to bring up diversity, especially if you live in an area that's not diverse. Have the conversations with your child. The internet is here. With the internet, there is no reason they can't interact with different types of people in their chat rooms, in their in all of their different social medias. But they need to know that it's okay from home too. That made me think of uh, an experience that's vivid in my mind. So one of the few African American people I knew growing up as a child in Alabama was a lady named Hattie, who was our she helped with house cleaning. She was a, a maid, basically. She was wonderful. And, and during that time, the show TV series Roots, um, before your time tomorrow, probably. Keep no, it's you, not. No, it's you, not. You heard of it. Mom you heard dad of it. watch it. I remember it on TV. It was, it's, it was a big deal. I mean, it was a, you know, I thought, you know, very well produced and interest, interesting show. Hard to watch and some of that. But we would sit down at lunch and talk about that with Hattie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there were some difficult, <laughs> difficult right. subject matter to have a conversation. But, you know, and at first I could tell she and I, even though I was just a child, she wasn't sure how much she was, you know, wanting to share. But after she, you know, kind of realized we were really interested in what she thought about it, you know, she started giving her real honest opinions, which was great. But providing opportunities for people to, to you know, see programs, interact with different people, um, and now that's you know a lot easier with with the world that we live in. But it but it can still be a challenge, you know, particularly for people living in in small towns. Mm-hmm. Any other thoughts about diversity inclusion? I, I want to um, ask another question or two before we wrap up. Any other thoughts on that? I think starting small with right think about the age group of the children you have in your home and the books that you have the tv shows you're watching that everyone is represented make sure the books the puzzles they are of everyone two dad homes two mom homes children right black kids and and asian kids is that represented in your home because that's showing acceptance of that and as children get older open to they're going to have some hard questions right are you ready to answer those and you know what and looking for different resources to help you lead those conversations with your with your kids. I really liked what you said earlier about, you know, one great thing parents can do is is invite questions because that to me that's such a key to learning. If you don't feel like you can ask questions, you know, and that obviously applies to more than diversity and inclusion. I mean, anything really. I mean, it, you know, children need to be able to feel like they can ask. That's a key way they learn, I would think, right? Absolutely. My here's a here's a quick story for okay. you at representation. So my uh nephew is is white. And so I was in his room the other night when my uh sister-in-law was putting him to bed, and then she said, Well, who do you want to look over you tonight? And I thought, what is she talking about? And she <laughs> pointed up to the shelf where there were these small plastic figurines, and they were not Superman, they were not Batman. They were female superheroes, and there was three of them. Uh, I was like, I was like, oh my gosh, she's doing such a good job because he picks out one that he likes to look over him at night. 
So just asking yourself some questions as a parent, does the superhero always have to be male? Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, you know, she's got it right. She's like, there can be Batman, there can be Superman, but there can also be female superheroes. So something as simple as that is teaching a child, you know, how to re- how to respect, you know, gender, how not to, you know, ident- over-identify power and hero worship, you know, with a male figure. Yeah, it doesn't always have to be, I mean, a big conversation. There's important conversations to have, but part mm-hmm. of it sounds like it's just looking for those opportunities to make it visual and make it part of your life, right? Yeah. I know we're trying to get to the to the end here, but it makes me think of how I was very purposeful in making sure that my boys had a black male doctor. I knew okay. that it was important for them to see that and to know that they could do that or be that because most of the pictures, most of the right are always of either a white male or an Asian male doctor. Now, it wasn't hard, easy, but I found one. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that made made a big difference, a big impact on them, I'm sure. I want to talk about one other issue before I ask you our traditional closing question, um, and that relates to technology. Technology can do some wonderful things for us. It's it's allowing us to have this this meeting now um, in three different states and and talk to each other. Uh, it's allows us to put this podcast out and listeners all over to to listen to it, which is great. I've started to explore a little bit warily Chat GPT, but because I know it's out there and we need to know how that's going to work. And and I'm seeing some, some opportunities to use that. So there's a lot of great things about technology, but it can also be overwhelming. And it seems like it can really take over our lives in some ways. I have to admit sometimes, you know, I'm guilty of burying myself in my phone. And I have to like, if I'm going to dinner or meeting someone for coffee, hey, let's put our phones down and actually talk to each other. I don't think it's realistic to say that we're just going to, you know, restrict total total restriction of access to technology because it's our lives, right? But what's your thoughts on how can parents effectively incorporate technology without letting it maybe overwhelm their life in the home? I thought about what's the research out there around technology and children. And there's three resources that families can go and take a look at if they like. One of them is Pew Research of 2020. It's called Parenting Children in the Age of Technology. So oh. P-E-W. Um, there's also some guidelines from the World Health Organization, WHO, about guidelines for children. And then there's a website called Screen Time. And on screen time, it breaks it down in different age groups. So zero to 18, you don't want to be having screen time. We talked about this earlier, right? We want this serve and return with them so that they can connect with and build relationships with people. Those sound like really good resources tomorrow. Thanks for for sharing that. We'll definitely put links to those in in the show notes and and on our website. Keith, anything else you could add related to technology? Any strategies or tips um, related to that? I think the only other thing I would add is there are parents who don't have kids engage in any technology until they're eight or 12 or so. I know a lot of parents who go to the Waldorf schools and that's pretty much a big no-no on their part and their kids do fine. They go to college at the same rate as other kids and they're, you know, very well adjusted. And, you know, so there's not a real problem with limiting that at the same time, 
you know, there's an in-between place too. There's all kind of timers you can put on, you know, children's devices nowadays so that it limits, you know, what apps they have access and it limits how much time that they spend. You know, uh, one of my three-year-old nephews, he, you know, his whole day's time on his tablet expires at 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. Just, he gets a big sign and says, you can't log on. We're done. We're closed for the day. And he just goes, Oh, and he puts it away and goes and it does something else. It does know? something else. Yeah, it, it sets some you know, boundaries, which I, you right, know, right. You sounds know, so healthy to me. Yeah. There's a variety of things that you can do to address those, even with the youngest children. I think one of the tips that, that I share often is that screen should be the supplement to the activity, not the activity. Okay. So if I'm watching a show where we're dancing, we were already dancing and here's right. We're doing something together. And the screen is a supplement for that. Okay. Instead of I'm just plugged in in here, especially for younger children. And then as children get older, you want to think about how are they creating good habits and good hobbies if they're, or, or how does this screen stop them from creating good habits or good hobbies, right? If they're always in the phone and are really not interested in being with others, really not interested in um, speaking out or joining the team because they're scared they're going to miss their show, how am I creating good habits? Absolutely. Yeah, that's very good input. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that. Well, we're, we're at our end of our time. I could, I could talk to you guys all day. Really interesting stuff. I'm definitely going to check out your book, which which I've got. And I will, as I mentioned, include a link to that in our show notes. Um, some great, great strategies in there. And while a lot of the content may be targeted to teachers, it definitely relates to parents. And as you both said, you've, you've worked with parents as well. And you're a parent yourself, Tamara. <laughs> so, I mean, you know the value of it. Oh, I'll get in trouble because I said hi to Zoe, but not to my kids. Oh. Hi, Niles and Hudson. <laughs> <laughs> you you got to get that in there. Absolutely, you got to you got to equal time, right? Absolutely, Recog <laughs> recognition. I started this podcast really as a way to people to have a discussion about what uh, promotes a feeling of belonging or sense of belonging in the home. What you've talked about today, creating a learning environment. Is, is one great way that that you can do that because that creates all kinds of connections, right? But I'm curious just with both of you personally, what is it that makes you feel most at home? And I'll start with you tomorrow. How, how would you answer that question? I feel most at home when there is a mix of calm and chaos. Okay. Tell <laughs> so me more. Tell me more about that. There's a nice buzz in the house. People are moving, people are talking, and I get to watch it and kind of take it all in that this is a comfortable, safe place where everyone gets to be themselves. That's my, that's my, and, and it's probably because I was raised with all those people, right? This you, Like there's always you, people coming and going. You would have trouble in a, a house with one other person or, or by yourself, I'm guessing. Yes. Yes, exactly. So my boys are grown and grown and flown, as they say. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, I'm going crazy. <laughs> what What about you, Keith? What What makes you feel most at home? It's an interesting question. Uh, I travel a lot for work, so I'm in a lot of hotels. I'm on the road a lot. Uh, the majority of my work is 
uh, done through travel. That, that can be so, really challenging, can it? Yeah. 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 And so I thought first, I thought, what, what do I like most when I come home? I like my bathtub and I like my bed. <laughs> Your stuff. Yeah. I like my basic, you know, physical <laughs> I love my bed. It's so great. But, <laughs> no. And then the second thing that came to mind was my husband and my mother-in-law who live with me. So, you know, when they're there, like even if I'm traveling and they're there, I feel more at home than I do when they're not. Great answers, both of you. And I really appreciate everything you guys shared today. It's great to reconnect with you, Keith, and it's great to meet you tomorrow. And, um, Check out their books, folks. It's it's really got some great tips and, and information there. A lot of work obviously went into putting that together. So thanks for sharing that. And um, thanks for being here today. Thank Chip, you, Chip. Thank you for having us. This was wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. If you'd like to learn more about the work of today's guest, connect with Keith at akyconsulting.com or with Tamara on Instagram at Joyful Presenter. Their book, The Instructional Coaching Handbook, 200 Plus Strategies for Success, is available for purchase online or at your favorite bookseller. I'm including resource links in the show notes and on our podcast website, homewhereyoubelong.com. Thanks again for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell your friends about us. We want to help you continue experiencing that feeling of being at home wherever you are. So please subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts and visit our website at homewhereyoubelong.com. Want to join in on discussions, ask questions, or share feedback and ideas? Join our Facebook group, visit us on Instagram, or send an email to chip at homewhereyoubelong.com. We'll see you next time. Proud member of the Podnuga Network.